Uh, we're going to get started this morning. If you have your Bible and want to turn to Hebrews 12, or you can look at the back of your bulletin if you have that there, has our scripture reading, opening scripture reading to start uh, the day. I gave a couple extra minutes here at the beginning because I know a number of you are dropping food off and uh, braving your way through the disastrous winter weather that we are having. And uh, this might be about as close as it gets to snow this year, it seems like. Uh, but I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. We have a few people out in the snow, not on purpose, but that are traveling. We have a number of people uh, traveling today, and uh, we have a few people up in that um, Winchester over into West Virginia area. And somebody texted me this morning and said they were in a blizzard, sent me a picture, and it was like a an eighth of an inch of a dusting of snow. <laughs> and um, so they got to see more winter than us this morning. Uh, but I'm glad that you're here with us. And uh, we are praying for those, like I said, a number of the people traveling this weekend, and uh, then we have a few that are out, and we're praying uh, for them. Dr. Crane sent me a message this morning, he's sick, and so we're praying uh, for him and a number of people. But if you're here together with us this morning, let's open with uh, the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, just one verse this morning. We're all going to read it out loud together, and then a little different than our typical Sunday morning schedule. You know, we have our going to be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of uh, this morning's sermon. And we also have our fellowship gathering this afternoon and early afternoon service. So uh, no choir or music special today. I told Mr. Young, I said, in studying for today, um, this is a passage that I might need a little bit more than uh, 20 or 30 minutes that we might do on a Lord's Supper morning. I said, I don't want to leave it hanging. So we're not going to cut that part of it. So our schedule will be a little different this morning. Uh, but if you would, let's open with Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We'll open in prayer and then sing a few songs together. There at the bottom, you see it? Let's all read it together out loud. Ready? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Father, your word <clears throat> is good. It is always true. <clears throat> you are good, and you are always faithful. And so we ask this morning that as we come into um, the presence of other Christians, that we would sense and know that your Holy Spirit is always with each of us. And so it's a special thing this morning as we gather together, because the Holy Spirit is represented, it lives in the life of every believer so as we gather together, literally gather together as your body and in your spirit, by your name, through your power, uh, we declare the ability to be able to worship you, uh, to come before you, to have access to you, and we need nothing, we need no one to be able to enter into uh, fellowship with you in prayer, into your presence in this way. And so we are grateful this morning that we have that opportunity. And as we go through the day and uh, partake of the Lord's Supper in a little while, may it be a reminder in our minds of what you have done for us and what you will one day do in us and for us in eternity. And as we focus on these things, may we take an inventory of our own lives and may we be changed by your word. Help us to see it clearly as you taught it. And as your disciples so often did, and they will even in today's passage, the disciples were confused. And we as your disciples often need teaching multiple times. And so we ask that no matter how many times we hear your word 
that today it would be new and fresh to us. And we praise you for it. Be with those that are uh, ill this morning in our church or have needs. We ask that you would guide and direct them even as they uh, watch online. May they know that their church is praying for them specifically. May they be encouraged by your word today and gather again with us very soon. And we praise you. Thank you. Be seated. Amen. If you would, take your Bible this morning and look at Matthew chapter number 15. We're going to read there in just a moment in Matthew 15. And as well, if you would, have your bulletin out and uh, we'll look at some things that are uh, coming up. You notice your bulletin structure is a little different this morning. <clears throat> a few different people I've mentioned or asked about being able to see the music to the songs that we may sing that aren't in our hymn book. And uh, being, some of you can... Uh, read music. Some of you see whether or not the note goes up or down, and we do our best. And so either way, uh, you see there that our songs are uh, in there for you this morning. You can follow along <clears throat> with those if you'd like. And then um, you see that today we're having the Lord's Supper in our service this morning. And then immediately following, whether you knew this or not or forgot or not, I was looking, it looks like we have plenty of food. That's not going to be an issue. And so uh, whether you brought something to be a part of this afternoon's lunch, that doesn't matter. All of us, all of you are invited uh, this afternoon down to the gym right after uh, the morning service. <coughs> we can head down and uh, just spend some time together and share a time of fellowship there. And then while we're still down there, just after the meal, uh, we'll have an early afternoon service. Uh, just a short time of uh, singing, devotion from God's Word as well before we're dismissed for the afternoon. And uh, with that, there'll be no uh, kids clubs or adult classes uh, tonight. And then you see some other dates upcoming and some things that uh, pertain to our junior camp, the, the week of junior camp coming up this summer, believe it or not, coming up quickly. Uh, but there's an early registration date that uh, our kids can get a discount uh, for camp if they register by then. So if you have a child that wants to go to junior camp, that's coming up in the next couple weeks uh, for that registration date. Uh, we mentioned yesterday at our men's breakfast um, down in the cafeteria that uh, starting March 5th, we're going to hold some, on Sunday mornings, we're going to have a, just a brief, short men's prayer meeting each week just before uh, the service. We're going to decide the exact time as, as to what fits best with choir practice and everything, but probably about 15 or 20 till the hour we'll meet and pray for four or five minutes together, and it will be specifically asking God uh, to bless the service of that day. We're praying that God will move by His Holy Spirit, inviting Him into our lives to work uh, in our worship, our prayers, and in the sermon for the day. Uh, but just a quick time of fellowship each Sunday morning and asking and relying on God to work in us and consciously entering uh, into each service with the spirit of worship. And you see some other events that are uh, coming up in the next few weeks as well. I will make note of one of our missionaries there at the bottom. Justin and Grace Hayes, uh, we mentioned this Wednesday evening, but Justin's dad uh, passed away unexpectedly uh, early this week of a heart issue, and so if you would pray for uh, Justin, the funeral is uh, this week, and he's coming back. He was already coming back for a short furlough in March, and he's actually going to be preaching for us on the 26th, um, but if you would pray for Justin's family uh, in the passing of his uh, father. All right, if you would, take your Bible this morning and look at Matthew chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you're visiting with us, or uh, you need one, if they're in the seat in front of you, there should be a brown-covered Bible. 
And if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have one that you call your own, uh, then that's our gift to you this morning. And we want you to have a copy of uh, God's Word. If you will, look at Matthew 15. We've been walking our way for a number of months now through the book of Matthew, uh, diving into the life, the ministry, and the teaching of Christ. We're going to do the same again this morning. And as we do, we're going to sing one final song in a moment. And as we sing that song, I hope you'll pay attention to the words of it. It's introspective. It asks us, um, it speaks of the Lord's goodness to us. Uh, But even as we read, I want each of us this morning to pray over uh, this passage and ask the Lord even now to work in your life personally. I think sometimes we come into a, a service and we judge how effective the message may be for us based on our first impression of the scripture when we read it. Uh, whether we know it very well or whether we think it applies to us. Uh, But I hope that this morning we will all enter as a church family into God's word with submission. So if you look at verse number one, and we'll read along down about halfway through the chapter. Then came Jesus, came to Jesus, scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and and mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or mother, It is a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, And honor not his father and mother, he shall be free. Thus have you made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand, not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out of the mouth, this defileth a man. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. He says, Lord, please explain. And Jesus said, Are you not also are you also yet without understanding? Do not ye yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands, it defileth not a man. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look to this portion of Scripture An uncomfortable moment for the Pharisees, a confusing moment for the disciples, but hopefully a clarifying moment in each of our lives this morning. And then after we pray a little different this morning, we're going to be this morning special. 
And so sing to the Lord in our worship. And you're going to see it's declaring the goodness of God. The words there are in your bulletin says, looking back, looking in, and looking up, we find the goodness of God. Lord, we praise you for uh, your mastery over our lives, the sovereign providence that you rule and reign over all of the world, all of the universe, and yet you are so personal to us. You love us, you cherish us, and you desire that we do the same toward you. And so this morning, we come before you and we ask you to teach us of your character and your nature. We ask you to teach us who you are so that we may love you. So that we may love you not because we first loved you to earn your love, but because you first loved us. And therefore, we give our love. And so this morning, God, teach us, guide us, direct us with all wisdom and prudence in your word. Uh, fill us and bring us to enjoyment of Believe you are always only good. Amen. Amen. And you may be seated this morning. And if you would, just quickly look at back at Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to be there this morning. And we're going to use this. This may not feel like a Lord's Supper passage, however... I think that any time we take the Lord's Supper, what he calls us to is to judge ourselves, to consider our own hearts, uh, to think about where we are in life and what God is trying to teach and accomplish us in us. And this passage really is no different than that. And so we want to look here this morning, Matthew 15. There's a couple words that stand out that are here a couple different times in this confrontation with Jesus and the Pharisees. And you see there the word, you see a couple different times, he says, your tradition. And many of you may think of different things when I say the word tradition. If you know me very well, you've been around me very long, you probably know what I think when you declare the word tradition. Anyone want to take a guess? Fiddler on the roof. Some of you are my best friends. Yes, I Love the Fiddler on the Roof. It's one of my favorite theatrical performances or stories. Uh, the story is set in a small village in central Ukraine and under the Russian Empire near the turn of the, eight, uh, the 19th and the 20th century. And the story centers on a poor milkman who tries to maintain his Jewish religion and his cultural traditions as outside influences start to press in on his life in different ways. He's combating a central to the theme. He is always kind of at odds with his three daughters who are have a desire to marry from love rather than their tradition of being espoused or set up through the parents in an arrangement. And the opening scenes of Fiddler on the Roof, it starts with a fiddler standing on the roof. Go figure. And he's standing there playing and uh, the main character, Tevya, he begins to explain. He says, you know, we're all like this fiddler on the roof. That life is a balancing act. We're trying to screech out, he says, some pleasant tune while standing on a difficult circumstance. And then he goes through and he walks through how they do that. He says, why do we do this? Why do we live this way? 
He says, what gives us our balance? And then he declares the answer and in comes the choir repeating the word over and over and over. And his answer is, what keeps us balanced in this life? Tradition. That's what he declares. It's tradition. In fact, I'm going to read you a little portion of the opening monologue. Here's what he says. He says, because of our traditions, we've kept our balance for many, many years. Here we have traditions for everything. How to sleep, how to eat, how to work, how to wear clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered and we always wear a little prayer shawl. Now listen carefully to what he says. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? And I'll tell you, I don't know. (laughs) But then he says this, and listen very carefully, because it's often our own hearts. But it's tradition. And because of our tradition, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. And while that remains one of my favorite theatrical performances, and it's beautifully written, the sentiments in that opening paragraph are wrong. (laughs) They're completely wrong. They're completely off base. They have nothing to do with actual spiritual life. And though I am not going to stand up there this morning and personally argue with the beloved Tevya of Filler on the Roof, Jesus this morning in Matthew 15 is absolutely going to argue with this man and with that statement. Jesus in Matthew 15 is confronted by religious men who hold firm beliefs about their ceremonial traditions and the instruction of otherwise religious men throughout generations of religious people and his response to them. We just read it. It's rebuking. It's very clear. He does not mince words. He does not bend or cater or patronize their ideals. He doesn't say, well, that's a pretty good thing. You've almost got it right. Just tweak this a little bit, and then you'll be serving God. He declares to them, your worship of God in this way and with the heart that you have, he uses the word vain, which literally means he's saying, it is useless. It is not worship. It is not relationship with the Lord. And so as he declares this, we may think that we hold very few physical things in common with the ritualistic practices of first century Pharisees. But they had formalized holiness and worship. And Jesus declared that their solution was broken. And so we would do well to listen. And I'm asking each one of us this morning to call into searching our own hearts. I have written down this morning a few more notes than normal. I I may read a few statements more than normal this morning because I, I want to do this with the right attitude and with the right spirit because Jesus, I think, presented things. He was not, you notice he offended the Pharisees. I don't believe that Jesus was offensive in the method or the manner of which he preached the message. But he did not mind that the message offended the hearts of sinful men. And so we in ourselves are called to the same introspective account. Where are our hearts with the Lord this morning? And so we we could list a lot of things. I could start this morning and say, what are some things that throughout history of the church and Christian people, let's just keep it to just the church and Christian ideals, what are some things, traditions that we celebrate? We could go around the room this morning. We won't, for time's sake, we won't, we could go around the room and just name a lot of different things. Some of them to us 
feel harmless, and it's not a problem that we deal with. For instance, uh, there's just little things. I, I actually asked about five or ten people in the last uh, few days just for some ideas to get ideas from what they thought, and there was all different things, like service structure in a church is can be a tradition. It's just, here's how we do our services. Service schedule and timings, what that looks like, what ministries a church has, the form, even some of their church polity can have those things. The fact that there are often crosses in churches. There's no command to actually have a physical cross. We have three sort of symmetrically in line, unless you really pay attention, they're not quite in line typically. And so we look at, you say, well, we're supposed to celebrate the cross. We are, but there's no command to have that in a church. In the same way, we're supposed to celebrate the resurrection, but we don't have an empty tomb in the side of our wall. That's expensive and it's odd looking. So we don't do it. And so, but we have these traditions. Think about this. And I mean, again, I'm not trying to run you off or assault you. I love Christmas, but Christmas is a tradition. And it's just a tradition, meaning it's just something that men have decided to do for a certain purpose, whether it is to point their mind. I think Christmas can point our minds toward God. But it doesn't make you a good Christian to celebrate Christmas and a bad Christian to not celebrate Christmas. Now here's Easter, Resurrection Sunday is a tradition. Now, and what I mean by that is the yearly celebration. It's great that we know the approximate time of which day at which Jesus raised from the dead, but the yearly gathering for Easter and a celebration of that holiday, actually what we're, principle we're given in Scripture is that we gather weekly on the first day of the week to celebrate consistently that God has risen from the dead. We have traditions of what an auditorium looks like or a building or structure, all these things. And while none of those, I don't think anyone in the room this morning would argue that any of those gain us salvation or even make us more spiritual those are very small examples i could stand up here this morning and just list 30 40 50 hundreds of traditions that christians have established in their own lives and so i want you to call rather than me doing that for everyone this morning call into your own mind for a moment what are some traditions that you have meaning they're not implicit commands of scripture and yet you hold to them for religious purpose or even scriptural principle. And we're going to walk through those in a moment. Now, it's not to say that at the end of this morning's message, we should throw them all out. That's not, in fact, you see, Jesus did not tell them, stop washing your hands. He didn't tell them that. He didn't tell them that washing their hands was a bad thing. But what he approached in their lives was, you have established something for yourself that God has not in your heart what you've done is you, you, make that, you think that makes you close to God, but your heart is actually far from Him. And so this morning, the intent, as we walk through Scripture, Jesus is trying to point out for these Pharisees and for His apostles and His disciples, look, you may have it all right outwardly, but be broken inwardly. And He speaks to that. The last few interactions of the book of Matthew have been people responding and teaching to the teaching and person of Jesus. Back in chapter 13, you have unbelief. And in 14, you have superstition, doubt, intrigue, anger, amazement. And even last week, as he walks on the water, how did his disciples respond? With worship. All these responses to Jesus. But the Pharisees had responded to God that he was not enough. They rejected God and the way of the word and the law of God they would never have said that. They had it memorized and they obeyed it all, but they added to it 
Because their declaration of God was, He is not enough. And we do the same thing in our own lives. And so this morning, if you would, look at Matthew chapter 15, where we pick up. You have in verse 1, what does it say? Then came to Jesus, scribes and Pharisees. Notice this little phrase, which were of Jerusalem. Now that's interesting. We're in Matthew 15. This is only like the third time Jerusalem has been mentioned in the book of Matthew. Jesus hasn't really been there. He hasn't had ministry there. So it's significant that these are Pharisees and scribes, not from Galilee, but they've come from Jerusalem. And most likely that means one of two things about them. They were either the big, big, top dog scribes and Pharisees that got the the holy post of the holy city of Jerusalem that they were assigned to. They were the great ones. Or they were promising up-and-coming students in Jerusalem, Pharisees and scribes, under the training of those top people. Either way, they, they come from Jerusalem. They make about a 75-mile trip on foot to see Jesus. They come to Jesus. It doesn't tell us why. Maybe they came to trap him. Maybe they came to scold him. Maybe they came out of intrigue because here's a man that is preaching to, mighty, to multitudes and doing mighty miracles, and they're trying to judge and figure out who in the world this man is. Whatever the reason, these religious men make a long journey, and at some point while they're with Jesus, it doesn't tell us how long they're with him, around him, but of all the things that could have set him off, set them off. When, when, he gets a, when they get a chance to speak to Jesus, I travel 75 miles to see the king of the universe. They don't realize it. Who's doing mighty miracles and teaching with all wisdom. And they get an audience with him. They, for the first time, they get to speak to him. <coughs> and this is what they bring up. Notice in verse 2. Why do thy disciples sin? The word transgress. Why do they sin against the tradition of the elders? I want you to notice, number one, the confrontation that's identified by these men. Their concern from these ultra-religious men was that Jesus' disciples, and we know from another passage that Jesus himself did not adhere to this ceremonial hand-washing. He didn't do it either. And so they bring it up. Why do your disciples not wash their hands? Now, Many of us, some of us are like, yeah, go get them. We don't want to wash our hands. And then there's others of us that are horrified that we might not wash our hands before we eat. But let me just tell you right off the bat, their concern was not hygiene. And their concern was not actually holiness. And we're going to see that as we walk through. It's important to understand that while there were washing principles in the Old Testament law for God's people... Every time that God gave washing principles in his law, they had specific purposes and were addressed to specific people. They were not broadly commanded for all people under all occasions. Let me give you a couple examples. You have the the passages listed there. In Exodus chapter 30, the priests are commanded to wash their hands and feet before they enter the tabernacle, which was a symbolic washing as they approached the altar that we will not carry into God's presence the sin and the the dirt and the, the disdain from outside. We will not carry that in. It was ceremonial. It was about entering the presence of God. Leviticus 13 and 14, there's commands about lepers. And it says that if someone was thought to have leprosy, they were sort of wash a certain way and then be presented to the priest to see if it was really leprosy. Or if a leper had been healed and it appeared that he had gotten well, he was also supposed to wash in a certain way and then present himself to the priest. In Leviticus chapter 21, actually in chapter number 22, the priests were allowed to eat certain kinds 
of bread and meat that had been brought as an offering to the tabernacle or eventually to the temple. And that's how God provided for the priests who had given it. They didn't have other jobs. They'd given their life to temple and tabernacle worship and sacrifice. And so one way that God provided is the, the meat from the flesh that people would bring and they would make loaves as an offering of bread to offer to the Lord. Once that had cooked in a certain way and been offered, the priests could eat it and even take it home and eat it with their families as a way that God provided for them. But in Leviticus 22, it tells us that if those priests were to touch a dead body, if they were sick with certain types of illnesses, if they touched certain types of bugs, if they touched a human or an animal dead body or a carcass. Here's the instruction. They were not to eat those holy things until they had waited all the way until the evening. Common principle, let the germs die. Or until they had washed their whole body. Now, what happened between that instruction and 1,500 years later, these men standing in front of Jesus saying, your disciples are sinning because they don't wash their hands before they eat. There's no command given in Scripture for that. And so, in the Old Testament law, God mentions that washing had to do with purity, the presence of God, the disease of leprosy, and the germs and uncleanness of touching of dead things or sickness. And yet, you fast forward, what had changed? God's Word had not changed. Nothing in God's instruction for the people changed. And yet their view of what they should do had completely changed. Not because God's word had changed or an interpretation of God's word had changed, but because they had added to. Over time, certain religious men, rulers, Pharisees, and rabbis had added this ceremonial washing to eating common meals. And so what they did is they took and they extended God's law to people that it was not given to. And they added to God's law purpose that it did not have. And they applied it in both ways. And now you have people that think that they are pleasing God, but in reality, they're just doing something that someone else wants. I'm going to give you a little illustration this morning, but before I do, I'm going to read to you. Here's some rabbinical teachings. They're easily accessible. You can find certain rabbis' writings. These are from about 100 years, anywhere from 100 years before to 100 years after. This is how seriously they thought, <coughs> excuse me, this is how seriously they thought about this hand washing. Whoever eats bread first without washing his hands, this is not scripture, it's <coughs> rabbi teaching, <coughs> teaching. Whoever eats bread without washing his hands, it is as though he had sinned with a harlot. Whoever makes light of the washing of his hands will be uprooted from this world. A person who despises the washing of hands before a meal is to be cast out of the synagogue. That's pretty fierce. You say, well, how bad could it be? They just wanted to be clean. They just wanted to take a moment and dedicate themselves to the Lord. I'm going to show you this morning. That's what they did. This is easily accessible information as well. You can find it in books. You can find it online. You can even go on YouTube and find modern Jewish rabbis teaching this particular ceremonial way. And so here's the way that they would wash hands. And I used to think that when I would read this text, I'm like, oh, man, they must have been like a doctor in a sur surgical room, just lathered up. One time I had surgery, I looked over, and my doctor looked like the Michelin man. He was just white foam everywhere, just po poofing out, and he's scrubbing, he's washing it all off, getting it all done. So here's what they would do. And to show you, this was not about hygiene. It was not about holiness. It was not practical use. They'd have a basin of water similar to this. They'd have another basin. And here was their instruction. 
You had to wash from the wrist down. If there was a disparity of water, you didn't have enough, you could wash from the knuckle down. You had to pour water over both hands twice, then lift your hands immediately into the air so that the water would not go up your arm to defiled areas and then come back down onto your hands. You had to lift it up in the air. You'd say a blessing to the Lord that was about six, seven words long. And then you could not speak before you started putting food in your mouth or else you had wasted the whole blessing and the whole process. You had to do it all over again. So let me just show you. This was not about hygiene because some of you are great at washing hands. They would literally take, pour it once, pour it twice, pour it once, pour it twice, set that aside, lift their hands into the air, say a six-word blessing, dry their hands off, and then now they are holy. Now, let me ask you, did I, some of you, if, did I just clean my hands? Like, if that's how your kids wash their hands and they've been digging out in the dirt and that's what they did, are they any more clean than they just were? They're not more clean. Are they any more holy than they were before? No, they are not. So the, the concern of these men was not true holiness. I've jotted down some things. Here's what bothered them. Why did it so bother them that the disciples did not wash their hands? Because it was a custom and a tradition held and taught by wise and respected men before them. Because it was a historical position that the religious community had held. Because it was their own personal practice. And because it was considered a statement against their own opinion for anyone to do otherwise. That's why they were burning with anger against Jesus and his disciples had nothing to do with righteousness or sin or relationship with God. It had everything to do with this is something we can establish, something we can do, and even look down on others that do not do these things. It had nothing to do with their heart. And so notice, number two, the corruption that's identified by the Lord. It's interesting that Jesus does not even for a moment entertain their notions he does not debate them about the technicalities. I mean, it would have been fairly easy for Jesus to be like, let's see you wash your hands. Do you think you actually got clean? No. But he doesn't even debate those things. He doesn't talk about the benefits of good hand washing or the downfalls of bad hand washing. He says, this is not an issue. So I'm not going to address it. He doesn't even acknowledge the benefits or the difference of opinion. He does not judge the effectiveness of the practice. What he looks at is the intent of their hearts. And what does he say when he does that? Notice, they say to him, verse 2, Why do you sin or transgress against the elders? Jesus' response, Why do you transgress the commandment of God? They say, Why are you not doing what the important men have told you to do? And Jesus says to them, Why don't you do what God has told you to do? And then notice, he gives an example. He could have picked any number of them. And I want to try to use his example this morning, because we could just list, list, list. We, we're people, we like certain structure. We like certain things set in certain ways. We want to be able to know what we have to do to appease God and be right before him. We want to know what it's going to take to make God not hate us or be angry with us. We, we want to know the list of things, and that's what these men desired in their lives. But notice, he's, Jesus is not just defensive. He goes on the offensive against these men and their hearts toward the Lord. He doesn't make excuses for his apostles. He doesn't make a promise that they're going to wash hands in the future to try to appease them. 
he actually he drags into the light another tradition that had brought sin and darkness into their hearts. And here's the example that he gives. And we read it already. He says, God commanded, verse 4, saying, Honor your father and mother. He that curseth his father and mother, let him die. And I think that God uses, Jesus uses this example because he, is, he says, your hand washing is frivolous. I think we all know that. But he says, but the sin of your heart is serious. He said, look, God's in his Ten Commandments, his law says, honor your father and mother. It goes on a chapter later and says, in extreme circumstances, dishonoring and rejection and abandonment of a father and mother and cursing them can actually be punishable by death. This is a serious sin. And so Jesus drags it into light and he says, but you say, whosoever shall honor his father and mother, notice this phrase, you say to them, it's a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me. Kind of reverse that phrase and it'll help you understand it. You say to your father and mother, here's something that you can have or profit by me, but this is a gift. Now the word he uses for gift there is the same word for the free will offering. And this is a tradition that the Pharisees had started. For instance, you can honor your parents many different ways. There's obedience, there's love, there's care, there's concern, there's time, there's reverence to them. But especially in their culture, and, and it should be this way in our way today, there's a care and a nurturing that should go toward parents as they reach a certain age, when they cannot work and provide for themselves. And God calls children to honor their parents by, in a way, repaying the dedication that parents have had to them for years on end. And he says, this is an honorable thing, and it's commanded by God. But here's what the Pharisees had instructed, and the religious rules had told people they could do. Let's just use a round sum of money. Let's say I have $50,000. I can buys me at least four dozen eggs. So I have $50,000, whatever, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Sorry, I can't help it. So we have, um, I have $50,000, and my parents are older, and they can't work anymore, and they have a need, they have a need for a house, they have a need for repair, but that's my $50,000, I don't want them to have that $50,000, but God has commanded, honor your father and your mother. And here's what the Pharisees, here's the loophole they had, they said, well, if you declare that a free will offering, commit it to the use of the Lord, then it cannot be used by anyone else but you. And so what would happen is they would have it. Now, they didn't have to give it to the temple immediately. They could have it, use it, and just say, this is for the Lord's service. And when they died, it would go to the temple. It was kept on record. It would go and be used for temple worship or whatever it may have been. No one else could have it. And so it says, loophole, honor your father and mother. I got $50,000. I don't want to do that. Oh, sorry, Mom and Dad. This is for the Lord's work. You know, that's what they would do. This, I've committed this to God. And because I've committed this to God, I cannot give it to you. And so here's what Jesus says. You have made null the command of God to honor your parents by obeying a command that, that wasn't even a command to begin with. That was the opportunity for you to give out of the love of your heart to the Lord. And you're abusing the liberty that you've been given so that you don't have to obey the actual command that God has given. And so what he says here is this, you... Here's what your tradition gets you. Here's what your commandments of men get you. It leads you away from the Lord. And so as you think about that, here's what Jesus says to them. He quotes Isaiah 29, verse 13, ferociously scolding the, the Pharisees' heart and spirit in verses uh, 7, 8, and 9. You hypocrites, Isaiah already prophesied this of you, verse 8. These people draw nigh to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me. 
So notice what he says. He says, you look and you sound godly, but you don't know God. In vain, in a useless way, you've tried to worship me, and your worship has no effect. Now, what has done this? Now, prepare your hearts and minds and get ready. What has done this? What has made their worship useless before God? What has made God look at their service and worship and turn away and say, it's not worthy, it's not for me. What has done this? Notice the phrase he uses in the verse 9. Teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. Jesus then turns to the multitude, verse 10. Hear and understand. Not that which goeth into the mouth defileth a man, but that which cometh out defileth a man. It's interesting. Jesus knows their hearts and that they are not going to get it. But he doesn't stand and endlessly argue and debate with the Pharisees about their traditions. What does he do? He turns to the people that are actually going to listen. And he teaches them. And it shows the mercy of God. Not that Jesus is frustrated by the actions of one. And so he rejects all of the whole. He knows their hearts. But he pleads with those who may still be moved. He says, you are not made holy by what you put in or what you do. You are made holy by the work that Jesus does inside of you. He says, washing your hands and then putting food in your mouth. And he goes on. He gives, he's going to be more descriptive in a moment. But I want you to notice number three. The concern of the disciples. The disciples are so concerned that Jesus offended the Pharisees. So Jesus tells the Pharisees, your traditions stink and they lead you away from God. And the disciples are like, why did you say that to them? They're important people. They're religious, righteous people. Jesus, don't offend them. Like the, We've got multitudes here of people that don't matter. The Pharisees matter. The religious people make a difference. And so Jesus hears this concern that they have, but he does not address it. He dismisses their customs as trifling. He does not seek to please everyone. He seeks to please only one, and that is God. Yet the disciples perceive that the result was unfavorable to the wise religious men, and so they conclude that Jesus is the one that has been unreasonable or improper in his response. Think about that. They hear the very words of God and realize that it offends and bothers the ultra-religious people. And they say, ah, which, one, which way are they going to side? And, and at first, they view Jesus' words as the inappropriate one. The words of God become null in their hearts because it bothers people that are super-religious. One quote said this, It is by this fear that many are held under the benumbing influence of biblical ignorance or sometimes brutal stupidity. Notice that Jesus did not seek to be offensive by the manner of his teaching, but his message is what brought their offense. And notice the final thing, number four, the challenge that's presented by Jesus. <clears throat> so Jesus responds to the disciples. He carries a lot of teaching in, in this initial confrontation, but then he gives them more. He says, leave them alone. It's the blind leading the blind. And Jesus did not organize a focused anti-scribe or anti-Pharisee committee. He knew that their efforts would eventually fail under the weight of their own legalism. Though the Pharisees and teachers of the law had all these scrolls and interpreted them in the synagogues, they did not really understand them. 
And there is guilt in these leaders in Jesus' statement for being blind and willfully ignorant. But there's also responsibility for those following them to make sure that their leaders are not blind. So you have Jesus saying, the blind are leading the blind. Eventually they'll fall in the ditch. Maybe then they will listen. Jesus simplifies further on the topic. Peter just finally asked, tell us what this means. And Jesus, almost pulled into just saying it clearly, gives a very blunt, it is not crass or rude, but he gives a very blunt statement in verse number 17. Do you not yet understand? Whatsoever entereth in the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast into the draught. Paraphrase, it goes in the mouth, in the stomach, out into the sewer. And you are no different when it is done. And whether you washed your hands before you ate it, or washed your hands after you ate it, or the item that you actually ate, none of that draws you close to God. None of it impresses Him. Why? Because God is the one who has designed what worship is really about. He says they are offering to God something that God has never asked for. It's the idea of Cain and Abel. God says bring a blood sacrifice. Cain brought good things, not bad, but not what God asked for. And it's not that God was dishonored by vegetables and fruit being brought as an offering. But it is that he did not bring what God desired. His humility and his submission to God's command and his word. And so, let's unpack this for the last couple minutes and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. They come to him and they ask his disciples, or ask, why do your disciples do wrong? Caveat, according to the elders and the long-standing teachings. He says, your traditions have caused your heart to view God and his word incorrectly. And in turn, you have not expanded to a more righteous law, but you've led yourself deeper into sin. And he turns and asks the multitudes, can you hear me? Do you get this? Do you understand? Jesus addresses their issue with two main phrases. He calls it, he says, traditions and commandments of God. Traditions are the transmission of customs, belief, rituals passed down over time, not directly commanded in Scripture. And so you could ask the question, are all traditions bad? What do you think? I had a wise teacher that one time said, if a question involves the word all or none, the answer is probably no. Because in most of life, there are exceptions. Are all traditions bad? Absolutely not. Are all of our own desires, our own personal opinions, or how, where we derive even from the principles of Scripture, is it bad for us to apply those in our lives in certain ways that are unique to us but not commanded directly by Scripture? No, they're not bad things. Paul speaks to those in Corinthians and Thessalonians. And yet he also addresses, he says, that they have become commandments of men. And that's where his issue is. That instruction is not based on Scripture, but it implies a rightness or wrongness of righteousness established by adherence to rules not made by God. And so if we are to submit to God and His Word, we will follow Him and Him alone. Now, I'm going to finish with a couple examples. And there's a lot of ways we can go with this today. Jesus just picked one of their examples and probably just do the same. There's any dozen or so prevalent issues, thoughts, opinions, preferences, personal decisions that we could lay out today. And I, I'm going to read this. I tried to write it in the right spirit. Jesus, Jesus does not address every issue and tradition that the Pharisees had. He just showed that they were mishandling them. And so to be frank this morning, there's f- several that we could mention today and try to give a full defense of. Jesus gave a brief but adequate defense 
And there are certain ones that tend to be bigger in churches, certain types of churches, even churches like our own. We mentioned a moment ago service schedules, song selection, physical posture and demeanor in a worship service, the attitude that is displayed, even to the apparel that is worn to a church service. And I'm going to use that as an example for a moment. None of which these things are given any biblical direct specific teaching. Not bad, but not inherently good. Some would say this. And I'll use an example. And don't, don't run on me here because I'm going to get I'm gonna round it in and close it. Give us an example of the danger. That's, that's what the, I want you to get that. The point of this passage is not Jesus is anti, anti-hand washing. The point that Jesus brings up is that there is severe danger in accepting your own mind and heart's thoughts about something as though they are God's or Scripture's. So let me give you this example. Some would say dress up for church in your church best to come to the house of God. Here's the way the principle is supported often. That in the Old Testament, priests dressed up to enter into God's presence. That only the best was given for a sacrifice. And now the church has replaced the temple and in the new covenant, we should dress our best to enter God's presence and give our best as a sacrifice to the Lord. Now listen. I have on a jacket and tie. There's nothing wrong with wearing that to church if it's what you want to do. But here are the dangers of that mindset. The New Testament makes it very clear that the temple has been replaced by the individual believer and that you never enter the presence of God. You are always in the presence of God. You do not get dressed up to enter His presence because that means you could get undressed to leave His presence. So you see the danger in the mindset. It's just a small formality. But what I've taught myself is that God is in a place, in a way, in a certain thing. And I can escape that if I want to. I can come into it when I desire. I can leave it when I desire. The other idea that the system of sacrifice that God demanded the best without blemish or spot. Here's the problem. Is that nowhere in the Bible does it say you can glorify God with a type of outfit or specific garment of clothing to please and glorify Him. The example of Cain bringing the wrong sacrifice. What God does tell us clearly pleases Him. Romans 12 is presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. Reasonable service. Not conformed to the world, but renewed by the transforming of your mind. Proving what is good and acceptable for the Lord. That is what God has demanded of us. And so you wear whatever to church. You can dress up. You can wear whatever you want. As long as we understand that there is danger in thinking, I can enter God's presence, or I can give God what I think I should give Him, when in reality, God says, you're always in my presence, and I want your life before I want anything else. Before I want your stuff, before I want your outfit, before I want your technique, before I want your tradition, give me yourself. In fact, there's other examples in Scripture. There's the idea of covering your head when you pray, particularly ladies and people go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and they quote, there's a couple of verses they quote about nature and, and it's just natural that people should do certain things and whether women should cover their head in prayer or have long hair. That's not really a standing in our particular type of church or tradition, but it's a big argument amongst certain types of believers in certain things. But the answer to Scripture is Scripture itself. Because if you read before and after those two verses that are so often pulled out of context and quoted, here's what the Lord says. Judge ye in yourselves. 
Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? The phrase that he begins the paragraph with is, you decide for yourself. And then here's how he finishes the paragraph. He says, so if anyone comes to you being contentious, let me read it to you. I don't have the verse right in front of me. Let me read it to you because I want it to apply. Here's what Jesus says, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, if anyone comes to you about this topic or this issue, if I can find it here, turn to the wrong thing. He says, if any man seem contentious, here's what, here's what you answer them. We have no such custom. Neither do the churches of God. He says, in these individual things, we don't have to have a statement about every detail of life because God has given us his word and told us there what is important. And it begins and starts in the heart. I know I have to close, and so let's, you can see on the back, we've put some application things there. And I want, we'll think about those in a moment as we get ready to take of the Lord's Supper. I just use one, don't, don't walk away saying, we just heard a sermon about what you wear to church. The sermon had nothing to do with what you wear to church. It's not about that. The point is that there is danger, danger in establishing the commandments of men as though they are the teachings and doctrines of God. He tells us to show wisdom in these things. And as difficult as it can be to hear this message from Christ as it is directed toward our own heart, the example of Jesus in the passage is encouraging. He says, he teaches us that whenever holiness is made to consist of anything else other than obedience to God, men are led to believe that God's law can be broken without danger. He says, you've made God's law of no effect. You have weakened it. Because I can, human beings, we can look at this and assess it. Yeah, that's a commandment of man. But if they teach that the same way that they teach God's law, and they don't really hold to it, it's not that big a deal if I don't do this. It's also not a big deal if I don't do this. But we elevate what God has told us, and we worship him by submission and obedience to him alone and whatever he leads in my life, if it is from Scripture, then I obey and follow. I want you to notice, as we finish, the disciples just didn't get it. But Jesus, it's the Pharisees. Jesus reproved them for being void of understanding. But he did not fail to act as their teacher. And aren't you glad that God does that? He stood immediately ready to teach those that were ready to learn. He does not reject us because of the ignorance or failure of our hearts. The frustration of our souls in our own failures, our own religious attempts to answer, are answered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The issue is not about the standards that we impose. The issue is about the heart. And so let me ask you this as we enter into getting ready to take the Lord's Supper. Do you know, do you really know and love the Lord Jesus Christ? Or have you been trying to live the Christian life without him? The only way the scribes and Pharisees could ever really know that God was not washing their hands one time, ten times, a hundred times, but it was about their heart being changed. Who can change the heart? No ritual, no practice, no established mode of religion. Only God changes the heart. So let me ask you this morning. Do you realize that you need a new heart? Do we realize that 
by coming to church each week and putting money in an offering, giving our efforts to the church and listening to a preacher is not a means of salvation. And it's not a means of relationship with Him. It does nothing without the heart. So if you're not a Christian this morning, the call is to come to Him. You will never appease God by your works, but only by His grace. And the message to Christians this morning, do we need a new heart? So I'm already saved. Why could I need a new heart? Let me tell you that the man after God's own heart was also the one that cried, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Some of us could say this morning, I have clean hands, but a dirty heart. God, give me a clean heart. I have right actions and standards, but I have a wrong spirit. God, give me a right spirit. I have the outward characteristics of a Christian, but I have no joy in salvation. I have drawn close with my words, but my heart is very far away. May we wake up this morning, let go of the commandments of men, and follow Christ. Let's bow our heads to pray, if you would, this morning. In a moment, the kids are going to come in so they can be a part of the Lord's Supper. And so, if your child's on his way and you can make room for them and they'll be seated with you in just a moment. But let's inventory our own hearts. I'm not here this morning to attack your view, your opinion, your ideal, your standard, your preference. Or even a conviction that God has laid on your heart for you personally. I'm not here to attack those things. Jesus didn't do that either. But what he did do is he addressed the danger of someone that thinks they are close to God when they are actually far away. And this morning before we take the Lord's Supper, assess where are you? You're not close to God because you're here this morning. You're close to God because of where your heart is. And the glorious joy of the mercy of Christ in the gospel is that the moment a sinner turns, he becomes a saint and is redeemed. And the same truth is in a heart that has relied on religion and rituals and thinks they are right with God but are not. The moment it turns in repentance, Jesus kindly meets. And so wherever you are this morning, do you know him? Do you love him? Are you following him? As the piano plays for just a moment, you can stand with me if you would. And before we take these only for my king. Amen. You have a seat there where you are. And uh, we'll have the men come in just a moment to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Typically, sometimes when we hold the Lord's Supper, we will open to a passage of Scripture, whether it's in the Gospel accounts of the actual Last Supper or open often to 1 Corinthians or 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll read and explain some of what it is. And we've done that uh, in the last few times. And so 
we won't take time to fully explain all the symbolism involved in this, but it is important to know that just as Jesus said, your washing of hands does not make you right for God. And taking these two little cups, one with bread and one with juice, does not make you right for God. But here's the glory of this moment, is that you can stand right before Him no matter what you have done, no matter where you have been, no matter what's been going on in your life, in this moment, Jesus offers forgiveness if there's repentance. You don't have to go home first and fix everything. You don't have to change anything about your life in your seat in the moment. He calls you to repent. And those that do so, it says, it warns in 1 Corinthians 11, we'll read, I'll read it to you in a moment, it warns that those that take communion, it says, don't, let, don't do it unworthily. Now, sometimes we read that and we think the only reason you can take communion then in the Lord's Supper means if you're going to do it unworthily, it means you have to be right with God in every sense. No, to take the Lord's Supper unworthily would mean to do it without the salvation of Jesus Christ. To say that I am right before God, yet not come through the Savior that He sent for us. And so this morning you say, well, what's the requirement for this? That you be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that in obedience, you desire to live and serve Him. We don't have to be a member of this church. We believe that baptism is the other ordinance, that it declares outwardly by a ceremonial thing. But but Jesus set the example. It declares outwardly what He has done inwardly. And in a way that this same thing in taking the Lord's Supper, we are declaring outwardly that we take God's blood shed for us and we take Christ's body that was sacrificed on the cross, we take it into ourselves. It's ceremonial. It's ritual. It's not wrong because it's what God has designed for us to do. But he says, I take what Jesus has offered, the blood and the bread, and I place it inside of me. And in the same way that I take the free gift that God offers in salvation, and in my soul Jesus has redeemed and has saved me, we do the same with this. So that's the picture that we have this morning. I read... Ironically, in the same passage we read from a moment ago where Paul is addressing differences of opinion, he says to them, just before he instructs him on the Lord's Supper, he says, first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And he says, this is a problem. And so this morning, may we find unity in Christ. He says, for I have received of the Lord that which I delivered unto you, that the same Lord Jesus, that same night, in which he betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And so this morning, we remember the sacrifice that Christ has given for us. Man, if you would, they're going to help. <clears throat> If you would, take one for each and just hold. We will take part in this together in just a moment.
as the example set by Christ. We'll first take the bread, if you would, and um, you can take it in your hand, think on it, dwell it. This little item, as I mentioned last time, it does not make you holy. Uh, it does not change you. This is from Amazon. And uh, it will make no difference in your life whether you put it in your mouth or not. However, what it symbolizes is that you already have in you all that you need for life and godliness. Because Jesus, by His Spirit, has entered you if you're a Christian this morning. And you can stand right before God. Regardless of your sin and your failings of this week, you can rightfully commit to God and say, I will follow you today. And you can do that by God's grace. So let's take and eat together. After they took the bread, he took a cup and said, this is my blood poured out for you. And as we mentioned, the bread can represent, this is God's body. It's what he's placed us in. We are in the body of Christ even. But he gave it for us. We have all that we need in him. And yet tomorrow, I still will probably mess up. You know, like, it, I'm right with God in this moment. I've repented of sin. Last week's sin is dealt with. But I'm still probably going to be pretty rough this week <laughs> at times. But taking Christ's blood says that he has poured it not just once, but that for all eternity I find forgiveness in him. And so that when I do fail, I can still be found. I can still find communion and love in God through him. And so in gratefulness, we take the cup today. And drink together. Are you thankful for the Lord's mercy this morning? Amen. We're going to be dismissed in a moment. I, I mentioned last week. It's interesting. You see a lot of times when the communion, the Lord's Supper, as we would call it, is taken in the New Testament. It was often around a meal that was already happening. Somebody would stand up and in the midst of a meal say this cup or this bread. We're going to take this and have a concentrated moment of our meal, focus on the Lord. And so we're going to do that today. We've already taken communion here. You don't have to do it at your table. Or we're going to do it sort of around a meal of fellowship. And so whether or not you plan on being with us today, uh, there is enough food for you, I promise. Some of us brought a little bit extra. You know, you always wonder who may come. And I know we have a number of people uh, traveling today and out. And that kind of thing. I promise you there is plenty for you down there. And I hope that you'll uh, take some time, come down, meet one another. Maybe somebody you've never met before. Um, maybe somebody you haven't gotten to speak to in a long time. And fellowship in the grace that God has given. Speak about encouraging, uplifting things, the goodness to the things that God gives us in our lives. And we'll be thankful for it. We're going to be dismissed with one final verse of that last song that we just did. And uh, we'll be dismissed with one verse of that. As the Lord Jesus said, they sang a hymn before they were dismissed. So we're going to do the same. And I always encourage you to remember, here's what Jesus promised his disciples. You do this every time you do it to remember me. And remember what Jesus said he was going to do? He says, I won't do this again until I stand in your presence and we are complete. And so while we take this waiting for Christ, he waits for us. And so we're thankful for that. We'll be dismissed after we sing one final song together. Stand if you would, we'll be dismissed. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store.
take myself and build me ever only all for thee ever only all for thee Phil Dimension, the meal is down in our gymnasium building if it's raining however you would like to get there if you want to run you can do that